tonight we get to talk about Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus tells us this as a way to let us know that he is God. And he lets us know that he is with us. And because he is with us and because he is God, God is with us in the midst of what we're going through. And this changes everything. It changes the reality of life. And it changes the reality of death. It changes everything that we're up against. And we think about this and we think, now what in the world could Napoleon Dynamite have to do with that? And it's two words. If only. You heard Uncle Rico say this. Now, if you're one of these people that have avoided that movie like a plague or haven't seen it in a long time, you might not remember Uncle Rico is this character who's stuck in 1982, the year that he graduated from high school, because he knows if coach just would have put him in, if only coach would have put me in, we would have made state. And I would be living with my soulmate, and, and we'd be soaking in the hot tub, and I'd be living in a mansion, and I would have gone pro. If only coach would have put me in. If only. Those two words. When do you say those words? We all have our if-onlys. Now, my wife and I had a baby in January, so our if-onlys, you know, are really low on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If only this baby would sleep one more hour tonight, we'd be okay. If only they wouldn't cry at the same time. Or if only when you get the first one done crying, the second one wouldn't start up at the exact same time. Now we have all these different if-onlys in our life, and maybe your if-only is different. Maybe you're, if only I get that promotion, or if only I would have had the courage to ask her out. If only, if only, if only I would have taken that more seriously. If only my life would have been different. If only I could lose five, ten, all right, 40 more pounds? What's your if only? It's woven into the story of who we think we are, right? This picture calls to mind the, uh, the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. And you see all those characters, if only. As if only I had a brain, if only this or that. So what's your if only? And this is a really important question because what I see in the if only is a way of taking all the struggles and all the pain in our life and kind of projecting the, the, the purpose of that and, and the cause of that on some circumstance in your life. We have a way of doing that, right? If only my circumstances were different. Now, the way that we talk about if-onlys, it's really about taking all the accountability I should be putting on myself and putting it on something else. It's not my fault I'm in this situation, it's, it's this other stuff. It's the circumstance that I'm put in. If only these things were different, then my life would be fine. If only is this way that I can live through my life with avoiding as much pain as I can. If only is this way of, of deflecting any blame that I have for myself or any responsibility that I have that I should be taking myself and putting it on something else. So be really aware of how you ask if only. We have this way of thinking that if our circumstances were different, everything would be better. And I'm not, 
I don't mean to diminish the difficulty of what you're going through. I obviously don't know what you're going through. But the reality is, life is 90% how we respond to our circumstances. And really only 10% of the things that happen to us. And, I, and I've learned that from people that have gone through more suffering than I can imagine. And I've seen the way that they responded. And it completely changes the way that you see your life. If only really matters when the stakes are really high. And you see Martha asking this question at the beginning of the reading that we read. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's heavy stuff. The last time I got to preach, I was preaching on Ash Wednesday, and I got to preach about death then, and now I get to preach about death again. Lucky me or lucky you, I don't know. Or maybe it's just the way that I see everything. You know, maybe I just have a twisted way of looking at the world. But this is a really powerful story, a really meaningful story of this man that Jesus deeply loves. And you see that in the way that it describes it. In verse 3, it says, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. This person that is really close to Jesus' heart is sick. And they're, they're calling on the Lord. Kind of like prayer. They're calling on the one that they know can change the reality of the situation. Who's there for them. And they trust in Jesus to change this thing. And they know if, if, if Jesus just comes, this is going to be different. If only Jesus comes, our circumstance will be different. But in reality, he doesn't come. When Jesus heard about this, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Know what has happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. If only you had been here. Now if you imagine Martha and Mary sending this messenger Quick, go get Jesus and tell him we need you right now because Lazarus is very sick and he needs the healing that only you can give. Come quickly. And the messenger comes back. I can only imagine how awkward that conversation was. So, where is he? Well, he, he didn't come. What do you mean he didn't come? Is, is he coming soon? I don't know. What did he say? What, c come on, what, what's, what's the big deal? What's going to happen? And as awkward as that conversation was, I can't imagine how much more awkward the conversation was when Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Can you imagine what kind of emotions were going on in her life at that time? When she's confronted with talking to Jesus, the one who has every ability and power to change the reality of her brother's death, but he stayed two more days. What happened? Where were you? Maybe she, is it, are you okay? Maybe something happened to you. No, you just stayed two more days? But Jesus, if only you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. 
if only. Where is God in the midst of our suffering? Where is God when we struggle? This is one of the biggest questions that we have. And, and, and there's been really great intellectual minds who have turned that question over and over again. And they, and they apply all the logic that they have to this question. Where is God in the midst of our suffering? But it's one of these questions that breaks the back of the logic that we apply to it. And one of the most brilliant minds in Christianity recently is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis is this amazing man who was so smart, and he was an atheist. And then he, and, and he believed he was an atheist because of his intellect. But then when he really looked into it, he couldn't help but believe in God. Believe in God made sense to him. And then he was married. He was married to a woman who was sick, and she died. And the things that made sense to his brilliant mind ceased making sense. He had this amazing power, almost beyond anybody, to apply logic to these sort of things. But there's no logic that would help this make sense. And he wrote this brilliant little book. It's a really short book, uh, but so deep. It's called uh, A Grief Observed. And if, if you are interested in reading about grief because you're a twisted person like I am, or because you're a grieving person, this is a really great book to read. And he, and he at the beginning of the book, has this really hard statement. Having lived as an atheist and now coming to believe that the only logical thing is to understand that God exists and God is real and that believing in the Bible makes sense, he struggles with this. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all because of what I'm going through because of the trials that are in front of me, but instead, the conclusion that I dread coming to and so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And what he's saying is, if, if I'm suffering like this, it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. Maybe it means that God doesn't care. Maybe it means that God is indifferent to my suffering. Maybe it means that in the midst of all these difficult things that I'm facing, God can't be bothered with really caring. That's a really hard thing, the conclusion to come to. And he doesn't come to that conclusion, but he's afraid that logic will lead him to that. And, and so this book is, is really kind of a stream of consciousness way of him kind of wrestling with his thoughts. And, and, and he doesn't land there, but he really, really wrestles with this stuff. And so we, we have to face suffering. We have to realize that this is a reality of life. And whether it's suffering that we're experiencing now or suffering that is a potential in our future, suffering that we see in the world, because there's plenty of suffering to, to, to contemplate. But if, if the way that we believe in God makes sense, we have to wrestle with this stuff. And it's important that we do, because then when we do face something, we'll have the kind of tools that we need to deal with it. And that doesn't mean it's okay, and that doesn't mean it's easy. You see, I, what I've come to realize is that if-only questions are really about wanting life to be easier than it is. And you don't have to talk about something as heavy as the loss of a spouse to realize that life isn't easy. We all have those things. We all have those moments when we're in public and we fall flat on our face. If only they would have picked that up 
or if only that sign would have been more legible. We all have those moments when, as I said, you have the toddler that's crying, and you have the baby that's crying, and as soon as you quiet one down, the other one amps it up, or they, you know, feed off each other, and uh, a little while ago, my wife and I started calling it, because we have a three-year-old and the three-month-old, the symphony of suffering. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they have this, you know, counterpoint where they're playing off of each other, and it, it would be absolutely beautiful if it wasn't so terrifying. But instead, God, instead of setting us free from our suffering, instead of giving us an easy out, a way around suffering, God takes us through these things. My uh, family is here today, uh, and one of the things, uh, my family's from Colorado, uh, and uh, has anybody driven through Nebraska before? You know, talk about suffering. Now, uh, the Onion, you know, The Onion is a satirical magazine or whatever. Uh, I don't know if they still print it as a magazine. It's online. Or, uh, they said, uh, Nebraska is the roadblock of America. They put it there to keep people dri from driving across the country. And, and uh, if you're from Nebraska, I'm sorry, because I'm going to offend you in this next little bit of the sermon. But driving across Nebraska is horrible. Uh, when my family's coming, they're texting me, and they're saying, man, I thought that would take forever. Or I thought that we'd be there forever. And I, I was thinking, maybe they should make that the motto of the state. Nebraska, you thought you'd be here forever. <laughs> but being from Colorado and, and wanting to be home and wanting to be in beautiful, colorful Colorado, as the sign says. And maybe you've driven to Colorado and you love seeing this sign. And especially when you're from there, it's, it's, it's like music to your eyes, right? So you get to this sign and you think, man... Welcome to colorful Colorado. <laughs> but then you look at well, the scenery right here. Where is it at? It looks just like Nebraska. Because <laughs> the eastern part of, of Colorado is just as bad, and it's just as bad for hours and hours. Right? And it got me thinking about this. If you think this is colorful Colorado, and you stop because you see the sign, and the sign tells you that you're there, and you say, all right, we're at Colorful Colorado. We're here. Here's the sign. That's what it says. We're going to camp out. Think about all the things you would miss out on. Think about all the things that you didn't get to see. You didn't get to see any mountains. You can't even see the mountains from there. You didn't get to see the snow caps or, you know, the, you didn't get to go skiing or hiking. You didn't get to see the waterfalls. You didn't get to see all the other things. And I was thinking about this with, with Lazarus. Because the Greek word for miracle is synonymous with sign. And so what Mary and Martha were really hoping for is, is redemption. What they were asking for is a sign. And we think about that. We, we want a miracle. We want God to take away our suffering now. We want God to do something miraculous in our life. And, and maybe you're not even asking God to raise somebody from the dead. Maybe you're just asking God to make the suffering a little bit less. So how do we deal with our unanswered prayers? We need to not get caught up on the sign. C.S. Lewis in Grief Observed says, the, the amazing thing about Lazarus 
You see, he had to die again. And we, we've thought about that, and we've maybe talked about that before. And, and, and when, he, when he thinks about his wife and her death, and he wants so much for her to be back with him, and then he suddenly realizes that that is so selfish. It's all about his needs. It's all about him needing to reconcile the things in his past, the grief that he has, not even thinking about how she would feel about that, not even thinking about the consequences that would have for her life. To come back from heaven to a world of suffering, to come back and go through death one more time. C.S. Lewis says, Lazarus is the one that got the really raw deal. So why was Lazarus raised? Lazarus was raised, as Jesus tells us at the beginning of that story, as a sign to show the glory of God, to point to something bigger. And the thing about signs is the sign is only as good as the thing that it points to. If the sign is pointing to something that isn't that great, welcome to Wyoming, then, sorry, that's a Colorado joke. So if the sign is pointing to something that isn't that great, then so what? The, the sign is only as good as the thing that it's pointing to. So what we really need is redemption. We don't need the sign of the thing that we want. We need the thing itself. So when Jesus comes to Lazarus, and he says, come out of that tomb, it's a sign of this bigger redemption. It's a sign of this bigger resurrection. He's pointing to himself, and he's saying, look, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. I'm the one that gets to redeem, and I'm the one that's going to change the reality of your situation, not so that death can take you again, but so that death never takes anyone ever again. And this is the reality of what God is doing. And this is what God really is about. This is who God is. Who is God in the midst of our struggles? So C.S. Lewis says this. The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there's any use in begging for tenderness. And I want to unpack that a little bit. So he's wrestling with the struggle of suffering. And he knows that God is all-powerful. He knows that God can change the reality of a situation. So then why does God not do that? Why would God not change my suffering? If God is capable and God loves me, that seems to be the only conclusion that I can come to. If God doesn't answer my prayers, if I ask for, for healing and he doesn't give it to me, it must mean that he's indifferent or he doesn't care or worse, that he's wicked. And he compares God to a dentist or to a surgeon. Now, if God is your surgeon and you're suffering because of your illness, but you're suffering also because of the surgery that you're experiencing, then to ask God to stop, to ask your surgeon, stop cutting me because that hurts. Well, if your surgeon's a good surgeon, he's not going to stop until he's done. Right? So the suffering that we experience must be because God has something different in mind. If God is good, there must be something deeper going on. God is like a surgeon in the way that he treats us, in the way that we suffer, in the way that we live this life. We know that God is for us. So there must be something more going on than God is indifferent. How do we understand this reality? We understand this reality by understanding who God is. In our lives, we can think about the suffering. We can think 
if only. You can turn to these things and just feel bitter about it. Or these things can change you. And I'm not saying that God's causing these things to happen. But we have to deal with the reality that if God is all powerful and all good, how do we reconcile the fact that these things do happen? In reality, we shudder to think, to really look at the face of, of life. My friend, somebody that's dear to me, texted me this week. He said, a friend of mine, somebody that I was in the service with, took his life. And I can't imagine what that feels like. He said he shot himself in front of his family, in front of his kids. Man. Who is God when we live in a world that things like that happen? And I've struggled with that stuff on a really personal level myself because of the things that I've been through. And I don't mean to compare what I've been through to that. But for each of us, we have the struggles that we have. And the reality of these things has to be compared with the reality of the God that we serve. And if the God that we serve gives us all these easy answers to the problems that we have that don't really answer the problems that we have, then the reality is that, that God is not up to the task. So what... Are we going to serve a God that's up to the task? In reality, we think that these things, we think about these things in a way that kind of minimizes them. Well, it's not that bad. And we try to be optimistic about it. But if we're going to look at death in the face and look at the reality of what we're up against, the reality is that it is that bad. But there's a deeper truth. Our God is bigger. Our God is better. One of the things that I faced in my life was to be in an earthquake in Haiti. In 2010, there was a catastrophic earthquake, and I landed in Haiti about 30 hours before the earthquake happened. I was there on a mission trip. It had nothing to do with the earthquake. We came there before, and then as I was strolling down this cobblestone street in a city called Jacmel, the ground started shaking. And I'd never been in an earthquake before. I thought, we thought there was a truck rolling down the street. But then... These buildings started to fall. Lots of buildings started to fall. And then the, the air, which was bright and shiny and clear blue skies, all of a sudden was so full of dust you could barely see in front of you. And, and the reality was that in this space, everything that we thought we knew became untrustworthy. You couldn't trust the ground that you're walking on. And there was people running around all covered in dust, and blood, and there were, the jail had broke open, so then the police were shooting guns at people. And so you hear these gunshots, and you see this chaos, and you can't imagine what in the world is going on. And you think, how am I going to survive the next five minutes, let alone these deep philosophical questions? And so we are in this place where we're huddled, where buildings aren't going to fall on us. And so we're in this place until nightfall. And we're trying to find a place to stay. And we're walking through town. And the Haitian response to this was to stand outside of their homes and sing songs. So as we're walking through the city, everybody is out of their homes, 
in front of their house. Some of the houses are collapsed. Some of them aren't. But the streets are lined with people. And they're singing in, in Creole, the language that they speak. And we obviously don't understand Creole. But you, we understand one word they speak. One word they sing is hallelujah. One word that they sing is hallelujah. They sing this amazing song of praise in the midst of the things that they're facing. And we were walking to this place, this orphanage, where these, these young people, these kids who had nothing, lost everything. And now the building that they were staying in was no longer safe. So they're in this yard where they would play soccer. And so we go and, and we're going to sleep in that yard with those kids. And as we walk there and we walk into the yard, we can hear the kids singing. And they're singing in Creole the song that we all know, How Great Thou Art. Thus sings my soul, my Savior, my God to thee, how great thou art. And in those kids, in that experience, I saw the depth of suffering. I looked in the face of death itself. I watched people die. But I also saw the face of God in those kids. And I also heard the praise of God ring through all these things so that we know that there's a God that's bigger than our suffering. We know that God is bigger, that God is tender, that God gives us exactly what we need, and, and that there's nothing that we suffer that is unnecessary. There's nothing that we suffer that is not without its purpose. And so when we go through the suffering that we go through, we know that God is with us every step of the way, and that is why we have the cross. The cross teaches us that God is with us, and that God is for us, and that God goes to the cross for us means that God suffers for us, and that we're not in this alone. God is amazing. God is holy. But God is for us. So who is God for me when I'm suffering? Where is God in times like an earthquake where literally hundreds of thousands of people died? There's this song that is by this artist, Julian Welch, that says, I will know my Savior when I come to him by the marks where the nails have been. It's one of my favorite songs. How do we know God in the midst of our suffering? God suffers with us. And God suffers for us. There's this deep truth that I wrestled with for a long time. And I, and I, I didn't understand until recently, I think. Where, why, why does Jesus have his scars after he's raised from the dead? Paul talks about our heavenly bodies. Paul talks about how we're going to be perfected. The Bible tells us that we are given new bodies that are spiritual, that, that go far beyond the perishable bodies that we have. So why does God have his scars? Why does Jesus have his scars after he's resurrected? He's given this spiritual body. And, and thinks that it, I think his perfection maybe is is harmed, his, his perfection is marred by the fact that, that he has these scars. So why does Jesus have these scars? The truth, I think, is because the scars don't mar his beauty as, the, as our Redeemer. The scars show us that he is our Savior. The scars in his hands and his feet and his side are the things that make him who he is. Those scars show us who he is. 
And as we think about our suffering, we think about the scars that we bear because of suffering in our lives, we can think, and I'm not putting this on you, but you're not going to be the person you were without the trials of your life. The trials of your life are the things that make you who you are. Now, tell me, honestly, do you think the deepest character-building moments in your life are the easiest things you've dealt with? No one would say that. So then why do we complain about the difficult things? Those are the things that make us who we are. Those are the things that build our character. And so why do, why do we lament the fact that we have to live through those things? The reality is that God redeems even the most difficult things in our life. God uses those things to transform us. And so we ask, why God? Why did I suffer that? Why did that person die? Why do I have cancer? Why am I abused? We can ask the why questions. But even if we had an answer to that, it wouldn't change the reality of our situation. God did something better. God answers our questions of God, not by answering them. God, it's not that God doesn't want to answer our questions, but in reality, the questions that we ask are because our perspective is so limited. We can only know what we know. And because our perspective is so limited, God answers our questions by opening our eyes to different questions that we should have asked instead. How's that for satisfying? <laughs> we want to know why. God doesn't give us a why answer. God gives us himself. God gives us his son on a cross. So that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. And that is not only better, that is infinitely better than an answer to the why question. If we had an answer to the why questions, we'd be like, oh, okay, that, is, that doesn't change my reality. Instead, God gives us something that is going to change the reality of who we are. And so when Paul talks about it, when Paul talks about resurrection, he tells us this. Some may ask, how are the dead going to be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? And, and he says, listen, you're asking the wrong kind of questions. You don't need to know the why questions. You don't need to answer to the how questions. Well, you need to know this. Just like a seed dies when it's planted in the ground, it's sprouted out as a tree. And it doesn't grow until it dies. That's the way it is for us. We want to end our suffering. But God has a bigger goal for us. God doesn't just want for our suffering to end. God wants us to be transformed. He wants us to be more than we've ever been. God wants us to live in a way that we never could live if we haven't been through these trials and come through the other side. You see, on the other side of suffering is this thing that we would never have if we just lived in the past. If we lived a safe life where we didn't really experience anything difficult, we wouldn't really experience anything meaningful either. We want to numb ourselves from the difficulty of life. But in reality, what happens is we numb ourselves from the good in life, too. We want to minimize our suffering. What we do instead is minimizing our joy. We don't want to minimize our joy. Instead, God gives us joy abundant. God gives us hope that the world will never trash, that the world will never disappoint. God gives us something that the world can never take away. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant until it dies first. And when you put that in the ground... It is not a plant that will grow, but only a seed of wheat or whatever is planted. Then God gives it a new body. You see, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is not saying that, you know, 
well, I've come to take away your suffering. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you something that is beyond suffering, something that not only undoes your suffering, but something that gives your suffering purpose. And so when we have this, we realize, looking back from the place of resurrection, we realize, you know what? I wouldn't undo my suffering because of where I've come, because of where I've been, because of who I am on this side, on the side of resurrection. Who I am is so much better, so much more important than who I was before, that I would never change that reality. And I've heard that from people. I've heard that from people that are blind, and I'm not putting words in your mouth. So if you're not here, I don't want to put that word in your mouth. But I've heard from people that are blind say, I wouldn't go back and see, because this is the thing in my life that has built my character more than any other thing. And I've heard from people that have cancer I wouldn't go back and change it. Now, if you have cancer, I'm not saying you should feel bad for not feeling that way. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm telling you about their experience and what they believe and what they know to be true. The reality of it is the people that have dealt with the most suffering in their life, in my experience, are also the people who have the most amazing character. And they also have the most capacity for joy. When you go through difficulty. You have a tremendous capacity for joy. And in these things, God gives us something more. God gives us himself. God gives us victory. So that we can say, death, where is your sting in this? You know what? I spent my life trying to avoid death. In reality, come death, because I know what is on the other side of it. It's resurrection. You can give me your worst. And, and, and it's nothing to me. Because on the other side of it is life abundant. It's amazing. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. Yeah, I would die ten times if I got to live forever with Jesus Christ. If I got to live with the people that I've lost. Come on, death, bring it on. Give me, the, give me your worst and I'm going to kick you in the teeth and tell you what Jesus Christ says. That he is the resurrection and the life. And the life that will never be taken away. And is it the light that shines in the darkness. And all these things can never overcome that light. Come, death, give me your worst, because I have victory in Jesus Christ. Because I know him. I'm, I'm known by him. You see, when we suffer, God gives us himself. And that's the whole point of what we're learning about this year. Our theme this year is to know and to be known. When Jesus Christ comes to Lazarus' tomb, He sees their suffering. He knows their suffering. He knows it internally. He knows it in his own heart. Because he suffers too. God doesn't give us an escape from our suffering. God doesn't give us an easy out that saves us from the difficulty because he knows that through that difficulty we are transformed. And because we are transformed, we praise God and God is glorified. Just like Jesus said at the beginning of John 11, God is glorified, and we know God to be glorified because he knows the most intimate parts of our heart. He knows the most intimate parts of our suffering, and he gives us resurrection. God takes our suffering and gives us healing, gives us peace. He gives us joy. He gives us things this world can never give and never take away. Isn't this the most amazing thing? 
This story changes everything. The God who created heaven and earth knows you by name and he knows your heart and he has a heart that beats for you so much that he weeps at your death. But not only does he weep at your death, but he calls you out of your tomb to life everlasting. Amen.